Hello, hello. Well, it's been quite a bit more than a week. I ended the last episode <laughs> uh, saying I'll see you next week. That was wishful thinking. Actually, uh, I probably just shouldn't say that because I don't know when these things will be coming out. But um, I actually did have the story part of the of this episode we're doing right now recorded a week after the previous one ended. However, I wasn't able to get the commentary recorded before I went on vacation. So I tried as hard as I could. I just couldn't find the time. Now I'm back and I am finishing up the commentary on this story, which is called The Conquest of Gola. It was written in 1931 by Leslie F. Stone, a female author writing science fiction, which was uh, fairly uncommon uh, at that time. Actually, I, I believe uncommon for a an author to be female and even more uncommon for an author to be writing science fiction, um, a female author. Anyway, I really enjoyed this one. Um, I've already read it. In the previous episode, I don't know if I mentioned this, but um, I actually hadn't read parts of it. I had read certain parts of it for some episodes, but some episodes that was my first read through. This one, I have read it and I... I'm going to tell you right now that I enjoy it, um, but I will still give you my commentary afterwards. So here we go. The Conquest of Gola by Leslie F. Stone. The Conquest of Gola by Leslie F. Stone, 1931. Hola, my daughters, sighed the matriarch. It is true indeed. I am the only living one upon Gola who remembers the invasion from Detaxel. I alone, of all my generation, survived to recall vividly the sights and scenes of that past era. And well it is that you come to me to hear by free communication of mind to mind, face to face with each other. Ah, well I remember the surprise of that hour, when through the mists that enshroud our lovely world, there swam the first of the great smooth cylinders of the Tataxalans, fifty tass in length, as glistening and silvery as the soil of our land, propelled by the man-things that on Tataxal are supreme, even as we women are supreme on Gola. In those bygone days, as now, Gola was enwrapped by her cloud mists that keep from us the terrific glare of the great star that glows like a malignant spirit out there in the darkness of the void. Only occasionally, when a particularly great storm parts the mists of heaven, do we see the wonders of the vast universe. But that does not prevent us, with our marvelous telescopes handed down to us from thousands of generations before us, from learning what lies across the dark seas of the outside. Therefore we knew of the nine planets that encircle the great star and are subject to its rule. And so are we familiar enough with the surfaces of these planets to know why Gola should appear as a haven to those inhabitants who see in our cloud-enclosed mantle a sweet release from the blasting heat and blinding glare of the great sun. So it was not strange at all to us to find the people of Detaxel, the third planet of the sun, had arrived on our globe with a wish in their hearts to migrate here and in their days out of reach of the blistering warmth that had come to be their lot on their own world. Long ago we too might have gone on exploring expeditions to other worlds, other universes. But for what? 
Are we not happy here? We who have attained the greatest of civilizations within the confines of our own silvery world, powerfully strong with our mighty force rays, we could subjugate all the universe. But why? Are we not content with life as it is, with our lovely cities, our homes, our daughters, our gentle consorts? Why spend physical energy and combative strife for something we do not wish, when our mental processes carry us further and beyond the conquest of mere terrestrial exploitation? On Detaxel, it is different. For there the peoples, the ignoble male creatures, breed for physical prowess, leaving the development of their sciences, their philosophies, and the contemplation of the abstracts to a chosen few. The greater part of the race faces forth to conquer, to lay waste, to struggle and fight as the animals do over a morsel of worthless territory. Of course, we can see why they desired Gola with all its treasures. But we can thank Providence and ourselves that they did not succeed in commercializing us as they have the remainder of the universe with their ignoble federation. Ah, yes, well I recall the hour when they first came, pushing cautiously through the cloud mists, seeking that which lay beneath. We of Gola were unwarned until the two cylinders hung directly above Tola, the greatest city of that time, which still lies in its ruins since that memorable day. But they have paid for it, paid for it well in thousands and tens of thousands of their men. We were first apprised of their coming when the alarm from Tola was sent from the great beam station there, advising all to stand in readiness for an emergency. Gebel, my mother, was the queen of all Gola, and I was by her side in Morka, that pleasant seaside resort where I shall soon travel to partake of its rejuvenating waters. With us were four of Gebel's consorts, sweet, gentle males that gave Gebel much pleasure in those free hours away from the worries of state. But when the word of the stranger's descent over our home city, Tola, came to us, all else was forgotten. With me at her side, Gebel hastened to the beam station, and there in the matter transmitter, we dispatched our physical beings to the palace at Tola and the next moment were staring upward at the two strange shapes etched against the clouds. What the Tataxalan ships were waiting for we did not know then, but later we learned. Not grasping the meaning of our beam stations, the commanders of the ships considered the city below them entirely lacking in means of defense, and were conferring on the method of taking it without bloodshed on either side. It was not long after our arrival in Tola, that the first of the ships began to descend toward the great square before the palace. Gebel watched without a word, her great mind already scanning the brains of those whom she found within the great machine. She transferred to my mind but a single thought as I stood there at her side, and that with a sneer. Barbarians! Now the ship was settling in the square, and after a few moments of hesitation, a circular doorway appeared at the side, and four of the Detaxalans came through the opening. The square was empty but for themselves and their flyer, and we saw them looking about surveying the beautiful buildings on all sides. They seemed to recognize the palace for what it was, and in one accord moved in our direction. Then Gebel left the window at which we stood, and strode to the doorway opening upon the balcony that faced the square. The Detaxalans halted in their tracks when they saw her slender, graceful form appear, and removing the strange coverings they wore on their heads, they each made a bow. 
Again, Gebel sneered, for only the male things of our world bow their heads. And so she recognized these visitors for what they were, nothing more than the despicable males of the species. And what creatures they were. Imagine a short, almost flat body, set high upon two slender legs, the body tapering in the middle, several times as broad across as it is through the center, with two arms almost as long as the legs attached to the upper part of the torso. A small column-like neck of only a few inches divides the head of oval shape from the body, and in this head only are set the organs of sight, hearing, and scent. Their bodies were like a patchwork of a misguided nature. Yes, strange as it is, my daughters, practically all of the creature's faculties had their base in the small, ungainly head, and each organ was perforce pressed into serving for several functions. For instance, the breathing nostrils also served for scenting out odors. Nor was this organ able to exclude any disagreeable odors that might come its way, but had to dispense to the brain both pleasant and unpleasant odors at the same time. Then there was the mouth, set directly beneath the nose, and here again we had an example of one organ doing the work of two. For the creature not only used the mouth to take in food for its body, but it also used the mouth to enunciate the excruciatingly ugly sounds of its language. Never before have I seen such a poorly organized body, so unlike our own highly developed organisms. How much nicer it is to be able to call forth any organ at will, and dispense with it when its usefulness is over. Instead, these poor detaxalans had to carry theirs about in physical being all the time, so that always was the surface of their bodies entirely marred. Yet that was not the only part of their ugliness, and proof of the lowliness of their origin. For whereas our fine bodies support themselves by muscular development, these poor creatures were dependent entirely upon a strange structure to keep them in their proper shape. Imagine, if you can, a bony skeleton, somewhat like the foundations upon which we build our edifices, laying stone and cement over the steel framework. But this skeleton, instead, is inside a body which the flesh, muscle, and skin overlay. Everywhere in their bodies are these cartilaginous structures, hard, heavy, bony structures developed by the chemicals of the being for its use. Even the hands, feet, and head of the creatures were underlaid with these bones. Ugh, it was terrible when we dissected one of the fellows for study. I shudder to think of it. Yet again, there was still another feature of the Detaxalans that was equally as horrifying as the rest, namely, their outer covering. As we viewed them for the first time out there in the square, we discovered that parts of the body, that is, the part of the head which they called the face, and the bony hands were entirely naked without any sort of covering. Neither fur nor feathers, just the raw, pinkish-brown skin looking as if it had been recently plucked. Later, we found a few specimens that had a type of fur on the lower part of the face, but these were rare, and when they doffed off the head coverings, which we had first taken for some sort of natural covering, we saw that the top of the head was overlaid with a very fine fuzz of fur several inches long. We did not know in the beginning that the strange covering on the bodies of the four men, green in color, was not a natural growth, but later discovered that such was the truth, and not only the face and hands were bare of fur, but the entire body, except for a fine sprinkling of hair that was scarcely visible, except on the chest, was also bare. 
No wonder the poor things covered themselves with their awkward clothing. We arrived at the conclusion that their lack of fur had been brought about by the fact that always they had been exposed to the bright rays of the sun, so that without the dampness of our own planet, the fur had dried up and fallen away from their flesh. Now, thinking it over, I suppose that we of Gola presented strange forms to the people of Detaxal, with our fine circular bodies, rounded at the top, our short, beautiful lower limbs, with the circular foot pads, and our short, round arms and hand pads, flexible and muscular like rubber. But how envious they must have been of our beautiful golden coats, our movable eyes, our power to scent, hear, and touch with any part of the body, to absorb food and drink through any part of the body most convenient to us at any time. Oh yes, laugh though you may. Without a doubt, we were also freaks to those freakish detaxalans. But no matter, let us return to the tale. On recognizing our visitors for what they were, simple-minded males, Gebel was chagrined at them for taking up her time. But they were strangers to our world, and we Golans are always courteous. Gebel began, of course, to try to communicate by thought transference. But strangely enough, the fellows did not catch a single thought. Instead, entirely unaware of Gebel's overture to friendship, the leader commenced to speak to her in a most outlandish manner contorting the red lips of his mouth into various uncouth shapes, and making sounds that fell upon our hearing so unpleasantly that we immediately closed our senses to them. And without a word, Gebel turned her back upon them, calling for Tanka, her personal secretary. Tanka was instructed to welcome the Detaxalans, while she herself turned to her own chambers to summon a half-dozen of her council. When the council arrived, she began to discuss with them the problem of extracting more of the precious tenix from the waters of the great inland lake of Notach. Nothing whatever was said of the advent of the Detaxalans, for Gebel had dismissed them from her mind as creatures not worthy of her thought. In the meantime, Tonka had gone forth to meet the four who, of course, could not converse with her. In accordance with the queen's orders, she led them indoors to the most informal receiving chamber, and there had them served with food and drink, which by the looks of the remains in the dishes, they did not relish at all. Leading them through the rooms of the lower floor of the palace, she made a pretense of showing them everything which they duly surveyed. But they appeared to chafe at the manner in which they were being entertained. The creatures even made an attempt, through their primitive method of conversing, by their arms, to learn something of what they had seen but Tonka was as supercilious as her mistress. When she thought they had had enough, she led them to the square and back to the door of their flyer, giving them their dismissal. But the men were not ready to accept it. Instead, they tried to express to Tonka their desire to meet the ruling head of Gola. Although their hand motions were perfectly inane and incomprehensible, Tonka could read what passed through their brains and understood more fully than they what lay in their minds. She shook her head and motioned that they were to embark in their flyer and be on their way back to their planet. Again and again, the Detaxalans tried to explain what they wished, thinking Tanka did not understand. At last she impressed upon their savage minds that there was nothing for them but to depart, and disgruntled by her treatment, they re-entered their machine, closed its ponderous door, and raised their ship to the level of its sister flyer, 
Several minutes passed, and then, with thanksgiving, we saw them pass over the city. Told of this, Gabel laughed. To think of mere man-things daring to attempt to force themselves upon us. What is this universe coming to? What were their women back home considering when they sent them to us? Have they developed too many males and think that we can find use for them? She wanted to know. It is strange indeed, observed Yabo, one of the council members. What did you find in the minds of these ignoble creatures, O August One? Nothing of particular interest. A very low grade of intelligence, to be sure. There was no need of looking below the surface. It must have taken intelligence to build those ships. None aboard them did that. I don't question it but that their mothers built the ships for them as playthings, even as we give toys to our little ones, you know. I recall that the ancients of our world perfected several types of space flyers many ages ago. Maybe those males do not have mothers, but instead they build the ships themselves. Maybe they are the stronger sex on their world. This last was said by Sweeky, the fifth consort of Gebel, a pretty little male, rather young in years. No one had noticed his coming into the chamber, but now everyone showed surprise at his words. Impossible, ejaculated Yabo. Gebel, however, laughed at the little chap's expression. Sweeky is a profound thinker, she observed, still laughing, and she drew him to her gently hugging him. And with that, the subject of the men from the taxel was closed. It was reopened, however, several hours later, when it was learned that instead of leaving Gola altogether, the ships were seen one after another by the various cities of the planet as they circumnavigated it. It was rather annoying, for everywhere the city's routines were broken up as the people dropped their work and studies to gaze at the cylinders. Two, it was upsetting the morale of the males, for on learning that two ships contained only creatures of their own sex, they were becoming envious, wishing for the same type of playthings for themselves. Shut in as they were, unable to grasp the profundities of our science and thought, the gentle, fun-loving males were always glad for a new diversion, and this new method developed by the Detaxalans had intrigued them. It was then that Gebel decided it was high time to take matters into her own hands. Not knowing where the two ships were at the moment, it was not difficult with the object finder beam to discover their whereabouts, and then with the attractor to draw them to Tola magnetically. An ose later, we had the pleasure of seeing the two ships rushing toward our city. When they arrived above it, power brought them down to the square again. Again, Tonka was sent out, and directed the commanders of the two ships to follow her in to the queen. Knowing the futility of attempting to converse with them without mechanical aid, Gebel caused to be brought to her three of the ancient mechanical thought transformers that are only museum pieces to us, but still workable. The two men were directed to place them on their heads, while she donned the third. When this was done, she ordered the creatures to depart immediately from Gola, telling them that she was tired of their play. Watching the faces of the two, I saw them frowning and shaking their heads. Of course, I could read their thoughts as well as Gebel, without need of the Transformers, since it was only for their benefit that these were used. So I heard the whole conversation, though I need only to give you the gist of it. We have no wish to leave your world as yet, the two had argued. 
You are disrupting the routine of our lives here, Gebel told them. And now that you've seen all that you can, there is no need for you to stay longer. I insist that you leave immediately. I saw one of the men smile, and thereupon, he was the one who did all the talking. I say talking, for this he was actually doing, mouthing each one of his words, although we understood his thoughts as they formed in his queer brain, so different from ours. Listen here, he laughed. I don't get the hang of you people at all. We came to Gola. He used some outlandish name of his own, but I use our name, of course. With the express purpose of exploration and exploitation. We came as friends. Already, we are in alliance with Damon. Again, the name of the fourth planet of our system was different, but I give the correct appellation. Established commerce and trade, and now we are ready to offer you the chance to join our federation peaceably. What we have seen of this world is very favorable. We are good prospects for business here. There is no reason why you people, as those of Damon and Detaxal, cannot enter into a nice business arrangement congenially. You have far more here to offer tourists, more than Damon. Why, except for your clouds, this would be an ideal paradise for every man, woman, and child on Detaxal and Damon to visit. And of course, with our new cloud dispensers, we could clear your atmosphere for you in short order and keep it that way. Why, You'll make millions in the first year of your trade. Come now, allow us to discuss with him, your ruler king, or whatever you call him. Women are all right in their place, but it takes the men to see the profit of a thing like this. You're a woman, aren't you? The first of his long speech, of course, was so much gibberish to us, with his prate of business arrangements, commerce and trade, tourists, profits, cloud dispensers, and whatnot. But it was the last part of what he said that took my breath away, and you can imagine how it affected Gebel. I could see straight away that she was intensely angered, and with good reason, too. By the looks of the silly fellow's face, I could guess that he was getting the full purport of her thoughts. He began to shuffle his funny feet, and a foolish grin pervaded his face. Sorry, he said, if I insulted you. I didn't intend that. But I believed that man holds the same place here as he does on Taxel and Damon. But I suppose it is just as possible for woman to be the ruling factor of a world as man is elsewhere. That speech naturally made Gebel more irate, and tearing off her thought transformer, she left the room without another word. In a moment, however, Yabo appeared, wearing the transformer in her place. Yabo had none of the beauty of my mother. For whereas Gebel was slender and as straight as a rod, Yabo was obese, and her fat body overflowed until she looked like a large, dumpy bundle of fat held together in her furry skin. She had very little dignity as she waddled toward the Detaxalans, but there was determination in her whole manner, and without preliminaries, she began to scold the two as though they were her own consorts. There has been enough of this, my fine young men, she shot at them. You've had your fun, and now it is time for you to return to your mothers and consorts. Shame on you for making up such miserable tales about yourselves. I have a good mind to take you home with me for a couple of days, and I'd put you in your places quick enough. The idea of men acting like you are. For a moment, I thought that the Taxalans were going to cry by the faces they made, but instead they broke into laughter, 
such heathenish sounds as had never before been heard on Gola, and I listened in wonder instead of excluding it from my hearing. But the fellows sobered quickly enough at that, and the spokesman addressed the shocked Yabo. I see, he said. It's impossible for your people and mine to arrive at an understanding peaceably. I'm sorry that you take us for children out on a spree, that you are accustomed to such a low type of man as it is evidently your lot here. I have given you your chance to accept our terms without force, but since you refuse, under the orders of the Federation, I will have to take you forcibly, for we are determined that Gola become one of us, if you like it or not. Then you will learn that we are not the children you believe us to be. You may go to your supercilious queen now and advise her that we will give you exactly ten hours in which to evacuate this city, for precisely on the hour we will lay this city in ruins. And if that does not suffice you, we will do the same with every other city on the planet. Remember, ten hours. And with that, he took the mechanical thought transformer from his head and tossed it on the table. His companion did the same, and the two of them strode out of the room and to their flyers, which arose several thousand feet above Tola and remained there. Hurrying in to Gebel, Yabo told her what the Detaxalan had said. Gebel was reclining on her couch and did not bother to raise herself. Childish prattle, she conceded, and withdrew her red eyes on their movable stems into their pockets, paying no more heed to the threats of the men from Detaxal. I, however, could not be as calm as my mother, and I was fearful that it was not childish prattle at all. Not knowing how long ten hours might be, I did not wait, but crept up to the palace's beam station and set its dials so that the entire building and as much as the surrounding territory as it could cover were protected in the force zone. Alas, that the same beam was not greater, but it had not been put there for defense, only for matter transference and whatever other peacetime methods we used. It was the means of proving just the same that it was also a very good defensive instrument, for just two hours later the hovering ships above let loose their powers of destruction, heavy explosives that entirely demolished all of Tola and its millions of people, and only the palace royal of all that beauty was left standing. Awakened from her nap by the terrific detonation, Gebel came hurriedly to the window to view the ruin, and she was wild with grief at what she saw. Gebel, however, saw that there was an urgent need for action. She knew without my telling her what I had done to protect the palace, and though she showed no sign of appreciation, I knew that I had won a greater place in her regard than any other of her many daughters, and would henceforth be her favorite as well as her successor. Now, with me behind her, she hurried to the beam station, and in a twinkling we were both in Tubia, the second greatest city of that time. Nor were we to be caught napping again, for Gebel ordered all beam stations to throw out their zone forces while she herself manipulated one of Tubia's greatest power beams, attuning it to the emanations of the two Detaxalan flyers. In less than an ouse, the two ships were seen through the mists heading for Tubia. For a moment I grew fearful, but on realizing that they were after all in our grip, and the attractors held every living thing powerless against movement, I grew calm and watched them come over the city, and the beam pulled them to the ground. 
With the beam still upon them, they lay supine on the ground, without motion. Descending to the square, Gebel called for Ray C., and when the machine arrived, she herself directed the cutting of the hole in the side of the flyer and was the first to enter it, with me immediately behind, as usual. We were both astounded by what we saw of the great array of machinery within, but a glance told Gebel all she wanted to know of their principles. She interested herself only in the men standing rigidly in whatever position our beam had caught them. Only the eyes of the creatures expressed their fright. Poor things, unable to move so much as a hair while we moved among them, untouched by the power of the beam because of the strength of our own minds. They could have fought against us if they had known how, but their simple minds were too weak for such an exercise. Now glancing about among the stiff forms around us, of which there were one thousand, Gebel picked out those of the males she desired for observation, choosing those she judged to be their finest specimens, those with much hair on their faces and having more girth than the others. These she ordered removed by several workers who followed us, and then we emerged again to the outdoors. Using handbeam torches, the picked specimens were kept immobile after they were out of the reach of the greater beam and were borne into the laboratory of the building Gebel had converted into her new palace. Gebel and I followed, and she gave the order for the complete annihilation of the two powerless ships. Thus ended the first foray of the people of Detaxel, and for the next two tells, there was peace upon our globe again. In the laboratory, the thirty who had been rescued from their ships were given thorough examinations, both physically and mentally, and we learned all there was to know about them. Hearing of the destruction of their ships, most of the creatures had become frightened and were quite docile in our hands. Those that were unruly were used in the dissecting room for the advancement of the Golan knowledge. After a complete study of them, which yielded little, we lost interest in them scientifically. Gebel, however, found some pleasure in having the poor creatures around her and kept three of them in her own chambers so she could delve into their brains as she pleased. The others she doled out to her favorites as she saw fit. One she gave to me to act as a slave, or in what capacity I desired him. But my interest in him soon waned, especially since I had now come of age and was allowed to have two consorts of my own and go about the business of bringing my daughters into the world. My slave I called John and gave him complete freedom of my house. If only we had foreseen what was coming, we would have annihilated every one of them immediately. It did please me later to find that John was learning our language and finding a place in my household, making friends with my two shut-in consorts. But as I have said, I paid little attention to him. So life went on smoothly, with scarcely a change after the destruction of the ships of Detaxel. But that did not mean we were unprepared for more. Gebel reasoned that there would be more ships forthcoming when the Detaxelans found that their first two did not return. So, although it was sometimes inconvenient, the zones of force were kept upon our cities. And Gebel was right, for the day came when dozens of flyers descended upon Gola from Detaxel. But this time, the zones of force did not hold them, since the zones were not in operation. And we were unwarned, for when they descended upon us, our world was sleeping, confident that our zones were our protection. 
The first indication that I had of trouble brewing was when, awakening, I found the ugly form of John bending over me. Surprised, for it was not his habit to arouse me, I started up only to find his arms about me, embracing me. And how strong he was! For the moment, a new emotion swept over me. For the first time, I knew the pleasure to be had in the arms of a strong man. But that emotion was short-lived, for I saw in the blue eyes of my slave that he recognized the look in my eyes for what it was, and for the moment, he was tender. Later, I was to grow angry when I thought of that expression of his, for his eyes filled with pity, pity for me. But pity did not stay. Instead, he grinned, and the next instant, he was binding me down to my couch with strong rope. Gebel, I learned later, had been treated as I, as were the members of the council and every other woman in Gola. That was what came of allowing our men to meet on common ground with the creatures from Detaxal. For a weak mind is open to seeds of rebellion, and the Detaxalans had sown it well, promising dominance to the lesser creatures of Gola. That, however, was only part of the plot on the part of the Detaxalans. They were determined not only to revenge those we had murdered, but also to gain mastery of our planet. Unnoticed by us, they had constructed a machine which transmits sound as we transmit thought, and by its means had communicated with their own world, advising them of the very hour to strike when all of Gola was slumbering. It was a masterful stroke, only they did not know the power of the mind of Gola, so much more ancient than theirs. Lying there bound on my couch, I was able to see out the window and, trembling with terror, I watched a half-dozen Detaxalan flyers descend into Tubia, guessing that the same was happening in all our cities. I was truly frightened, for I did not have the brain of a gebel. I was young yet, and in fear I watched the hordes march out of their machines, saw the thousands of our men join them. Free from restraint, the shut-ins were having their holiday, and how they cavorted out in the open, most of the time getting in the way of the freakish detaxalans, who were certainly taking over our city. A half-ouse passed while I lay there, watching, waiting in fear at the loss of what life we had led up to the present, and trembled over what the future might be when the Detaxalans had infested us with commerce and trade, business propositions, tourists, and all of their evil practices. It was then that I had received the message from Gebel, clear and definite, just as all the women of the globe received it, and hope returned to my heart. There began that titanic struggle the fight that won us victory over the simple-minded male weaklings below who had presumptuously dared to conquer us. The first indication was that the power of our combined mental concentration at Gebel's orders was taking effect on the men of our own race. They tried to shake us off, but we knew we could bring them back to us. At first, the Detaxalans paid them no heed. They knew not what was happening until there came the wholesale retreat of the Golan men back to the buildings, back to the chambers from which they had escaped. Then grasping something of what was happening, the already defeated invaders sought to retain their hold on our males. Our erstwhile captives sought to hold them with oratorical gestures, but of course we won. We saw our creatures return to us and unbind us. Only the Detaxalans did not guess the significance of that did not realize that inasmuch as we had conquered our own men, 
we could conquer them also. As they went about their work of making our city their own, establishing already their autocratic bureaus wherever they pleased, we began to concentrate upon them, hypnotizing them to return to the flyers that had disgorged them. And soon they began to feel our power, the weakest ones first, feeling the mental bewilderment creeping upon them. Their leaders, stronger in mind, knew nothing of this at first. But soon our terrible combined mental power was forced upon them also, and they realized that their men were deserting them, crawling back to their ships. The leaders began to exhort them into new action, driving them physically. But our power gained on them, and now we began to concentrate upon the leaders themselves. They were strong of will, and they defied us, fought us, mind against mind. But of course, it was useless. Their minds were not suited to the test they put themselves to. And after almost three hours of struggle, we of Gola were able to see victory ahead. At last the leaders succumbed. Not a single detaxalan was abroad in the avenues. They were within their flyers, held there by our combined wills, unable to act for themselves. It was then as easy for us to switch the zones of force upon them, subjugate them more securely, and with the annihilator beam, to disintegrate completely every ship and man into nothingness. Thousands upon thousands died that day, and Gola was indeed revenged. Thus, my daughters, ended the second invasion of Gola. Oh yes, more came from their planet to discover what had happened to their ships and their men, but we of Gola no longer hesitated, and they no sooner appeared beneath the mists than they too were annihilated until at last the Taxel gave up the thought of conquering our cloud-laden world. Perhaps in the future they will attempt it again, but we are always in readiness for them now. And our men, well, they are still the same ineffectual weaklings, my daughters. Well, there we go, the conquest of Gola. But was it a conquest? I don't think so. Who guessed that Detoxal was Earth? I did. And you know what? I actually try, I actively try to not guess the outcome of a story, unlike many other people I know. I don't know. For me, I like the surprise. So whenever I watch a movie, I'm not the type of person that tries to like, you know, guess the plot. I feel like stories can get easily spoiled for me. You know, it's not to say that if they do get spoiled, I can't enjoy it, but I think I gain a lot more satisfaction from a story when I'm surprised or when I um, when something awesome unfolds, you know, before me that I didn't see coming. Anyway, um, I saw this one coming pretty early on. And honestly, this is I've read lots of stories that are like this, where um, they'll tell you a story, but they won't name the planet and come to find out that it's a planet that you're aware of, you know. But I thought Leslie did a pretty good job with this one. This was a role reversal story where she describes a planet dominated by females. I think it's uh, a historical fact that women in this history of humanity have, you know, gotten the short end of the stick most of the time. I would like to say that we are headed toward parity, uh, but I'm going to leave that up for debate and not get into it right now. Anyway, in Gola, which is Venus in this story, 
females absolutely dominate the world. And in fact, to the point where men are kind of like playthings to them. Pretty cool. Uh, I, I have to imagine, you know, much of this story is based on experiences that she has had in her in in Leslie's life. In the 30s, when this was written, it was even more so true that it was, you know, a male dominated world. And um, apparently, she didn't even use a pseudonym to get published. Um, Leslie is her name. However, Leslie is also a male name. So that could have actually helped her get published being a female um, in this time period. What I find interesting about this story is that while she does go full on girl power in it, the the main character, well, is she the main character? The 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 narrator is the daughter of the queen. But so I was going to call the queen uh Gebel, the main character, but maybe she's not. Maybe she's the you know second. She's not really a likable one. And I, I didn't get the feeling that Leslie wanted the reader to necessarily like her. I mean, obviously she was a leader and she had to have certain qualities to be a good leader. Uh, but I didn't necessarily find myself on Queen Gebel's side. This book also clearly touched on communism versus capitalism. Uh, Earth, the de Taxalans, were trying to bring capitalism to Venus. I don't know that you could say that the Golans practice communism, but that's the obvious kind of, you know, what people think of as the opposite. I actually just read a John Steinbeck novel. Let me see when that was actually written. I read In Dubious Battle by John Steinbeck, and that was actually written five years after the conquest of Gola in 1936. And it has been called a straight-up propaganda novel. Uh, I didn't know this, but John Steinbeck was a communist, (laughs) or at least had lots of sympathies toward the Communist Party. By the way, In Dubious Battle, excellent, excellent book. Every time I go back to John Steinbeck, I am just blown away by uh, how good he is at just telling a story. I don't think it matters what side you land on the... um, spectrum of communism and capitalism, but it was a great book, and so was this one. Ultimately, in this story, the Golans won, so I guess you could say the communists won. I don't know that you could say that, (laughs) but I just did. (laughs) Leslie makes up a few words in her story, namely Gola, obviously, is what she calls, well, Gola is the Venusians' word for their world, and they are Golans instead of Venus and Venusians. Detaxal is the Golans' word for Earth, and they are Detaxalans. And then Damon, it's spelled D-A-M-I-N, Damon, Damon, I don't know. Damon is, is their word for Mars. I love that she says that the Detaxalans, the Earthlings, had some other word for Damon, but they will use the correct word, you know, in the, their own word in her retelling of the story. Also, she makes up some units of time. And I found this a little bit interesting, although I'm not sure how much she thought about this when she wrote it. Uh, Perhaps I haven't tried to make anything fit, but, 
you know, Venus is different, is, is very strange when it comes to time periods when compared with the rest of the planets in the solar system. Venus is the second planet from the sun, and it takes 224 Earth days for Venus to go around the sun. So that's how long a year is on Venus. But it takes even longer, 243, uh, about, you know, 20, that'd be 19 days longer to rotate on its axis. So a day on Venus is actually longer than a year. So I guess what that would feel like if you were living on, you know, on the same point on Venus's surface for a whole year is that the sun would not rise and set before an entire year elapsed. Now, what does a year feel like on Venus? I'm not exactly sure. I think the only way you could tell that a year went by would be the position the position of the stars in the sky because what is Venus's axis or not axis but it's uh axial tilt. It's only it's it's only um 2 degrees. So I don't know that there would be a lot of seasons. You know, we have seasons on Earth because our axis is tilted, I think, like 23 degrees to the plane of its orbit. But Venus is not tilted that much. Actually, you could say that it's tilted the most of all the planets because it actually rotates opposite. So so on Earth, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Well, that would be the opposite on Venus because it rotates the opposite way. Looking like a bird's eye view down at the solar system, planets orbit the sun in a counterclockwise fashion, and they also rotate on their axis in a counterclockwise fashion. The way I always remember it is, sorry, I'm getting way off topic. The way I always remember it is planets generally rotate like as though they were a ball on a surface. So they, they, they go around the sun and they're kind of rolling around the sun, as you would imagine if they were on a hard surface. Well, Venus is different. And it, you know, it goes counterclockwise around the sun with all the other planets, but it rotates clockwise in the opposite direction. I, I believe scientists think that it may have gotten hit early on, so it, its axis flipped, but that is the case. So the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. And where was I even going with this? I'm not even sure. But Leslie makes up words for, uh, well, okay, so here's the thing. She says the word, she uses the word Os. It's spelled O-U-S. So how would you pronounce that? I don't know. I, I said Os. And, you know, that looks to me like our because it's got the O-U. And actually, at one point, I think she slips and messes up because she says, quote, I remember the surprise of that hour, end quote. So shouldn't you be using Os, you know, if you're a, if you're a Golan? I think so. Anyway, she gives the equation for converting hours to os, and because the uh, the tax lens say that they'll give them ten hours to decide, and she says, but not two os later. So you know, I think it's a rough estimation, but essentially, ten hours equals two os. So let's do some more um, difficult mathematics on science fiction shorts. That would mean. One os is five hours long. Oh, yeah. And so that's why I brought up the rotation and everything of, of Venus. Because 
you know, our time periods are based on the rising and the setting of the sun. So I wonder if you could somehow, you know, if she divided a Venusian day by a certain number to get two os, like, like how would Venusians keep, keep time if their days are so long on the planet? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's just interesting to think about, actually. Uh, again, I don't know if she thought about that when she wrote it or not, but something interesting to think about. She also said TAS, T-A-S, and that was a unit of length. She didn't give us the equation, but she just said 50 TAS in length, so who knows how long a TAS is. And then finally, she made up the word TEL, which I believe, uh, T-E-L, which I believe we are to understand is a year. But again, we don't know actually how long that is. I mean, if, if it is a year, then we do know how long it is, but she doesn't say exactly what length of time that is. Finally, I want to talk about the body layout that Leslie gave the Golas. I found this to be one of the more interesting parts of the story, the description of, uh, you know, an, an alien's perspective of what an earthling looks like, a detaxalan. And on the reverse, what detaxalans must have thought of golans. So what she describes a golan as, uh, they have a circular body, no skeleton. So, you know, I don't know how amoeba-like that makes them, but they're generally circular. I don't know if that means spherical, by the way, but they're circular. Golden fur. But she also mentioned feathers, so I think maybe some of them have feathers, not sure. Movable eyes, and she mentions that they can remove their eyes if they don't need them at the moment. They absorb food through their skin, I guess, although I don't think they would consider it skin because they were kind of grossed out at human skin. And with this description, I think of one thing and one thing only. I mean, it's not an exact description of this, but uh, I think of those stupid aliens on the fifth element. You know the ones I'm talking about at the beginning? They're in, they're like made of like, it looks like bronze metal or something, but they have those perfectly circular bodies and they kind of have those anteater heads and they they waddle as they move. Uh, it, they are the stupidest ideas for aliens that could have possibly been imagined, but <laughs> it's actually one of my favorite movies from um, the 90s. But I, I don't think that's a good description of a Golan. It, they basically just have the circular body and they kind of waddle. Actually, waddling, she mentions when she is describing poor, poor Yabo. I don't know what Yabo did to deserve this paragraph in this story, but Leslie describes Gebel, the queen, as this beautiful, slender, slender, I don't know how, because, see, she says they have a circular body, but then she describes Gebel as slender and straight as a rod. That doesn't make sense. I guess it could be that they're not spherical, that they are kind of like a flattened disc, and maybe slender means more flat, I don't know, but straight as a rod, I don't know, she's not bent over. That doesn't really make sense to me that much, but um, this was in opposition to poor, poor, obese Yabo. I would like to read the description of Yabo one more time. 
Yabo had none of the beauty of my mother. For whereas Gebel was slender and straight as a rod, Yabo was obese, and her fat body overflowed until she looked like a large, dumpy bundle of fat held together in her furry skin. Well, see, they use skin right there. She had very little dignity as she waddled toward the Detaxalans. This is interesting to me because she's going full-on girl power in this story. But she describes this person, obviously female, like this. I think what's happening is there's someone in Leslie's real life that she really hates. You know what I mean? Someone that she has no respect for and that she is describing in this story, although she may never have known it. I don't have any other explanation for this. It it seems like an unnecessary description of this poor Yabo. <laughs> but um, there it is, and I found it interesting to read. I loved this, this story. Uh, you know, not too long. We got it done in one sitting, but it's just great to be able to peer into the minds of of these people from so long ago this was uh 90 years ago somebody wrote this story and uh you know venus was such a mysterious place back then they often just people thought that it was like a jungle environment on on venus and just people had no idea and it's you know in some way kind of sad that now you know we pretty much know what most of the planet's look like and uh you know basically if we're looking for life now we're looking for microbial life you know it's possible that there's submarine life uh on enceladus or uh what's the other one um europa but you know as for like <laughs> jungles like were imagined back then and you know people i i think we're at a point now where we can say that no then no, there's not. So there we have it. Uh, that was the conquest of Gola. And uh, I don't know when. I'm not going to commit to anything. But I do already have the next story picked out. And you will hear it when you hear it. <laughs> Until then, see ya.